This morning, I would like to talk to you about an experience that is common to every human being on the planet. In fact, I'm going to mention some names that you will probably recognize even though you do not know them personally. For example, Jennifer Aniston, Cher, Whoopi Goldberg. Do you know what they have in common? Uh, all three of them have a fear. They are afraid of getting on airplanes and flying to some other part of the world. It's a fear that sometimes paralyzes them. And then there's Barbara Streisand, the great singer, the great actress. Barbara Streisand has a fear. She is afraid of being in a crowd with people that she does not know. And sometimes that fear can control her life. It can paralyze her. And then there's Woody Allen. Probably the sum of all fears could be a description of Woody Allen. You may have heard his famous statement. He said, uh, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be around whenever it happens. But yes, Woody Allen is afraid. Uh, he is afraid of uh, dogs. Uh, he is afraid of bright lights. Uh, he is uh, afraid that someday he will contract cancer. Woody Allen is afraid of a lot of different things. But this phenomenon that we identify as fear is not new to our generation or our time. In fact, it's something that has happened in the past. It's happened uh, through the entire history of the world. Historians tell us that George Washington, our first president, was afraid that he would die in a casket. He would still be alive once he was placed in that casket. It was a fear that dominated his thinking. Richard Nixon was deathly afraid of hospitals, tried to avoid them at all costs. And then Napoleon, the great general who conquered nations all around him, he was afraid of cats. It's hard to believe, but people are afraid. People everywhere, in every country of the world, have to deal with fears almost every single day. So that leads me to ask you a question. What are you afraid of? Well, I don't want to spend our time talking about all kinds of fears, your fears and, and, and the fears that dominate our thinking or even the fears that might be in our country today with this pandemic with which we're dealing. What I'd really like to talk to you this morning is about one specific fear and then I would like for us to look at one individual who had to deal with this fear. And we're going to discover that somehow he learned to conquer this fear in his life. And then I want us to take some time to look about, uh, at how we might take uh, his experiences and we can incorporate them in our own lives. So we're going to talk about this fear, we're going to talk about an individual, and then talk about how we might implement his solution in our lives, even starting today. So here's the specific fear that I want to talk about. It is the fear of ultimately doing the will of God. Now, you might push back right now, and you say, I'm not really concerned about that. I never really thought I, I had a fear like that. But just stop and think for a moment. What if God came to you and asked you to do something specific that was overwhelming to you? What if, for example... Uh, God asks you to approach someone in your neighborhood, someone in your job, to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For some of us, that's a scary thought. That's a scary thing that we might have to do. And yet God might be asking you right now to do that. Or maybe God's asking you to make a major change in your life. Major change in a relationship. A major change in a job. And when you stop and think about that, it can be scary. Or perhaps God is even calling you into vocational ministry here in the States or some other part of the world. When you think about that and you assume that that is God's will for your life, how does it make you feel? Are you afraid? And if you are afraid, what are you going to do about it? Now, that's the specific fear I want to talk about. And the individual who had that very same fear and can give us some instructions this morning is the man Moses. If you have been with us in this sermon series over the last several weeks, uh, this will not be the first time you have encountered Moses. You may remember several weeks ago we started this sermon series and we titled it Into Egypt. We wanted to try to determine how was it that the people of God, the people of Israel, ended up in the land of Egypt. And then on the other side of that, we kind of changed the focus of the series and we are calling it now out of Egypt. How is it that God was able to take an entire nation, millions of people, and to bring them into another location? He delivered them. How did that happen? So that's the background of the uh, series that we've been engaged in. So, So back to this man Moses and to this fear of doing the will of God. What do we need to know about the process of overcoming the fear? And how is it that God specifically engages us to deliver us from fear? One of the things that I want you to notice this morning is to return to the scripture that we read just a moment ago. Exodus chapter 3. And this week we are looking at the second half of the chapter. Verses 13 through 22. Exodus 3 verses 13 through 22. And if you haven't already turned there, please find your way back to Exodus chapter 3. Now I want you to notice in this passage that Moses is a fearful man. And here's why we know that. There are two questions that appear in the passage. The first one we find uh, way back in verse 11. And you may remember that this chapter starts off, uh, Moses has been a man on the run. Very interesting that uh, this first question would be posed to him because we discover that Moses is a fearful man, and here's why. He was raised in the palace of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, probably had a a great uh, education, even though he was born a Hebrew. And then one day he looked out on his people, the Jewish people, he had compassion on them, pity on them, and he saw that they were suffering, and he went down among them, and he killed an Egyptian slave master. Uh, The Pharaoh found out about that, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, Moses is filled with fear, and he becomes a man on the run. He becomes a fugitive. He ends up in the land of Midian, and when we encounter him in the first part of uh, Exodus chapter 3, we discover that he's no longer member of a royal family. Uh, He is a man who is away from his own people. He's only a fugitive. Uh, He is probably a humbled man, a broken man, because we discover he's a shepherd. Doesn't appear to even own his own sheep. He is caring for the flock of his father-in-law. That's how we first discover Moses in Exodus chapter 3. 
But God appears to him in a bush, a burning bush that is not being consumed, and God begins to speak to him. And he says uh, to Moses, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel. And Moses, I'm asking you to be my partner. And like any of us, he begins to protest. I want you to notice how Moses responds to this question in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Behind that question is a sense of fear. What I would suggest to you is a fear of incompetency. After all, he's a broken man now. Why would anyone think that he is going to be the deliverer or the partner with the living God to bring the people of Israel out? That's the first reason we know Moses is a fearful man, and he's pushing back against God's will that's been spoken to him. But there's another question, because Moses must have started to process all of that, and he's beginning to think, Well, this uh, person who is appearing to me, this God who has come to me, seems to be pretty powerful. A miracle has taken place in front of me, so uh, maybe I might end up back in Egypt. And so as he's processing this, he has another question. We see that question in verse 13. Notice what Moses said. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me this, what is his name? Now, that's a good question, but there's more behind that question than what we might initially think. You will remember that the people of Israel, yes, they had a relationship with this God who is going to come back to them. But, but more than that, they have been worshiping many gods. There are a lot of gods in, in the land of Egypt, and we'll discover that in the weeks ahead as we go through this book. But I want you to make note of the fact that they might ask him a lot of things, and as Moses processes all of this, he's thinking, I might get into a debate to these people. Uh, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to be a good apologist? And so behind this is not only a fear of competency, it's a fear of rejection. He is fearful that his own people might turn away from him once again. Moses is a fearful man. Now, with those two questions and those two fears, fears of incompetency, uh, fears of rejection, I want you to notice that Moses does become a changed man. He doesn't seem to be fearful as we encounter him again. I call your attention to Exodus chapter 15. At this point in time, people of Israel, they have crossed the Red Sea. They have been delivered out of Egypt. Now they are becoming a nation that's going to be a free nation. And Moses begins to sing in Exodus 15. Listen to verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. My question to my own heart and my question to you is how in the world did that happen? How does a fearful man, not wanting to do the will of God, become someone who is praising God and exalting God? It's what starts to happen. And I want to underline that word, what starts to happen, because we're going to see this in the next several chapters that it's happening over and over and over again. But what starts to happen is that Moses is getting a better understanding of God. For example, in uh, verse 14, he begins to understand something of God's identity. 
And then in uh, verses uh, 15 through 17, he begins to understand a little bit more about God's portfolio. And then uh, in verses 18 through 20, he begins to understand a little bit more in terms of how God works and what God is able to do. And finally, in verses 21 through 22, he discovers something about what God will do for his people when they trust him. Now, what are we to make of this? A fearful man ultimately is going to become a courageous man. How does that happen? And it's not so much by Moses asking, who am I? But it's more Moses discovering the answer to the question, who is God? There's a principle that I want you to hear. There's a principle that I am reciting in my own heart and mind, and a principle that I trust you will take with you into the rest of your life. Listen carefully. If you write anything down, this is what you'll want to write down. And that is, God reveals his character to give us courage to do his will. God reveals his personhood to give us power to do whatever God wants us to do. Now, with that in mind, I want us to take some time to examine the character of God in this passage. I want us to see something about the person of the living God and then to ask, how in the world does that encourage anyone? How does it give us the courage to do the will of God? We'll see as we move through it. There are are four different aspects of the character of God, and here's the first one. We discover it in verse 14. And that is, we begin to understand that God is eternal and God is personal. How do we know that? Moses asked the question, a fear-ridden question. If I go to the people and they ask me, who who is this God, what should I say to them? Go back to verse 14 and notice what he says. Say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There's been a lot of debate, a lot of study on this phrase, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. What does that mean? In Hebrew, and then ultimately as we translate it into our English text, that phrase, I am, could also be translated, I will be who I will be, it's really taken from the Hebrew verb that we translate to be. And whenever we have that, I will be who I will be, I, uh, I am who I am, I have been who I have been, that's basically what God is saying to Abraham. But what does that really mean? If we were to look at that term and notice in verse 15, uh, the title, the name is changed again. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, there it is. And in your translation, it's probably all capital letters, uh, the Lord. Uh, It's also a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Uh, It was a sacred name for the people of Israel. Now, we need to be clear that this is not the first time that the people of Israel have heard the name Yahweh. So they're not going to say, well, we've never heard that name before. That's not what's being said. They want to know something more about who is this God, and Moses needs to know him. And he's discovering that he is the eternal God and the personal God who has come to Moses first. In fact, if you were to examine that term, 
You could go all the way back to Genesis. You'll find the term in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 27. The name Jehovah, the I Am, appears in all those places. What's also interesting, we encounter that name for God in Genesis chapter 2, where God is the creator God. So when God shows up and starts to speak to Moses, he's basically saying to him, I want you to understand that I am the eternal God. That's what my name means. I am who I am. And I am the God who has created everything. The implication would be, Moses, I've created you. I've created the people of Israel. Tell them that I am has sent me. Now, notice that he is the creator God. I want you to also notice that uh, in verse 12, God has already told Moses, Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt, and here's what you need to remember. I will be with you. It could also be translated, I am with you. Now, imagine that. He's not only the creator God, he is the God who is present with them. And then did you notice that word at the end of verse 14? I am has sent me to you. He does not say, God has sent me to the people of Israel. Uh, God has sent me to uh, another nation, to uh, to Egypt, to condemn them. No, he says, I am sent me to you. It becomes very personal. So my point is that this is the God who is eternal and personal, and this eternal personal God is with his people in power. He's with his people in their presence to transform them. Now, what in the world does the attribute of God's character uh, that talks about his eternality and his personhood, what does that have to do with us? Every time I read this passage and every time I think of the I Am, I think of the evening that I was ordained into ministry. It was Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a church that I had come to love, and and my family was there, and uh, Something happened that evening that I will always remember. I'm sorry to say it wasn't the message that was presented, wasn't a testimony, uh, wasn't even something that someone came up and said to me personally. It was watching my son after the ordination service, my oldest son. He was about a year and a half, and um, he was a toddler. He was uh, walking. He was actually starting to run at that point in time. And so uh, he went to the back of the church, and food had been prepared, and, and he was doing what all church people do when they go to an event like that. He was looking for food. And so he was walking around the tables. But I also noticed that Aunt Josephine, someone who had been very special in our family, was following him everywhere. Uh, I don't even think that Phil realized that, but she had her hands out, and and she was watching in case he would fall, and, and she was helping him to get some food, and she was going everywhere with him. And every time I think of that image, I'm thinking that's the way God is. I don't mean to trivialize who God is, but God is with us everywhere. He is the eternal God. He's the personal God who is right there with us whether we realize it or not. And if that eternal, personal God is with you everywhere, how can we resist doing the will of God? God reveals His character to give us courage to do His will. And that God is the eternal, personal God. There's a second attribute in this passage, and that's the fact that uh, this God is also the God who is faithful and true. Now, how do we know that? 
I call your attention to verses 15 through 17. Notice what happens in verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. There's the personal side again. Sent me to you. But notice that he is identified as the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Basically, what God is saying to Moses is, I am the God of the covenant. And I promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 that I would be this, with this people. A great nation will come from you, Abraham. And in the process, I will bring them into this land. God had also predicted that they would face oppression. And now they are down here in Egypt, exactly as God said would happen. And then God said, I'm going to bring them out. And that's going to happen in a short manner of time. So basically, God is saying, I am the faithful God. I am true to my word. He says that twice. He refers to the covenant in verses 15 and again in verse 16. But then uh, drop down to verse 17. And God says this, right on the heels of saying, I'm the God of the covenant. Verse 17, and I promise, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is basically saying, if I have been faithful to the people of Israel all of these years, and I've cared for them, in fact, he's implying, Moses, I have cared for you, and I'm making a promise that I'm going to care for these people in the days ahead. God is a God who is faithful and true. But again, I, I ask the question, what difference does that make in our own lives when it comes to us finding courage to do the will of God? I don't know if you've ever uh, seen these signs, uh, perhaps uh, outside of a department store or a business, and the sign will say, established in such and such a year, in business uh, over a period of time. Sometimes uh, we'll get notices in the mail we're told to give business to a certain company, and then they'll say, in business since 1934. What they're really trying to say is, we've been around for a long time. We've stayed in business through thick and thin. We're reputable. You can trust us. That's what God is saying to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I'm the eternal God who is personal. And I have been faithful and true, and I'm going to be faithful and true again. Moses, people of Israel, you can trust me. Now, how do you come to a point in your life where you're ready to trust a God like this? We need to get to know him. I was talking with a friend uh, yesterday, and he was telling me that one of the things that he does is that every year, he's been doing this for the last several years, he'll read through the Bible. Sometimes he has a Bible app where he can actually uh, push a button, and he'll begin to hear the Scripture read in, in front of him. So he'll listen to the person who's reading. He'll read along himself, and he does that over and over and over again. And what he's discovering is that he knows God more and more. And he's discovering that God is faithful and true. You'll discover that as well when you start to read through the Scriptures. Even starting by reading through this book as we engage in this series together, you're going to discover great things about God. And in so doing, you'll know that God reveals 
His character, to give you courage to do His will. And when it comes to His character, you discover that He is uh, eternal and personal. You discover that He is faithful and true. Read through this passage and you'll discover something else. A third aspect we discover about God, a third attribute, is that uh, God is uh, also powerful and transforming. How do we know that? Look at what happens uh, in verse 18. You can imagine that Moses is still thinking, if I go back to the people, they, they might reject me. That, that's a great fear in his life. He's probably thinking about the elders of Israel. But notice what God says to him in verse 18. He says, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to, uh, to the king of Egypt and say this to him. Uh, God's already anticipating something. Uh, this God knows everything. He knows exactly what the elders of Israel are going to do. He knows everything about Moses. Not only that, he anticipates, and apparently, God is transforming the elders of Israel. Can you imagine that? Even before Moses shows up, they're ready. They're ready to listen to him. And they're starting to believe that God is faithful and true, that God is eternal and personal. And now they're discovering that this God knows everything, and he is omnipotent, powerful enough that he can change the people of Israel. But that's not the only thing that he's changing. Would you continue to read... Uh, beginning in verse 19. God says, but I know. Make note of that. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by, my, by a mighty hand. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. This God who is sending Moses, this God who is sending the elders to come before Pharaoh, they're going to understand that God can transform anyone and they will know that God is omnipotent, God is all-powerful, and He can even change the most powerful person in the world. Would you notice in verse 18 that God says to Moses, now when you go to the Pharaoh, you say to him, uh, allow my people to go a three days journey so that they might offer sacrifices. Or to say it another way, allow them to go a three days journey so that they might worship me. We'll discover uh, Pharaoh is going to resist that. But the key thing is that these people, these Hebrews, they're going to come out of, of Egypt and they're going to become worshipers. That's one of the things that happens when you begin to know the living God who knows all things, who is all-powerful, you respond in worship to him. There's a great picture at the end of Matthew's gospel. We are told that Jesus appears to his disciples. And when they see him, in fact, they've gone to the very place that Jesus tells them to go. When they see him, they don't start to ask questions. The text says, they fell down and worshiped him. That's what happens when we begin to discover that God knows everything, God is in control of everything, that God is all-powerful, that He's faithful and true, that He's eternal and personable, the response is, we begin to worship. So, my question to you, what is it that God's asking you to do? He's presenting His will to you. How will you respond? Look at His character 
And God has revealed his character so that you might have the courage to do whatever he asks you to do. There's one other attribute, one other characteristic of God. Not only is he eternal and personal, not only is he faithful and true, not only is he all-powerful and, and, and transforming the lives of people, and he knows absolutely everything, would you notice what happens in verses 21 through 22? Now, it's important to understand that if you were to go back to Exodus uh, chapter 15, one of the things that God said to Abraham, when I bring you out of this land, God predicted it ahead of time, when I bring you out of this land, I am going to give you great possessions. And then notice, here in verses 21 and 22, God says this, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. God's saying, I'm going to keep my promise. I am the God who provides. He's not only eternal and personal, he's not only faithful and true, he's not only omnipotent and omniscient, uh, he is the God who provides whatever we need to carry out his will. And so then we read in verse 22, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And at the very end of the verse, it says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I'll try to picture this. The Israelites plundered the Egyptians. They took many things with them, not because they had great armaments, not because they were more powerful physically than the Egyptians. They were able to do it because of God, the God who provides for whatever we need. And God has always provided for his people. Not everything that we want, but he always gives us what we need to carry out the task that is before us. A couple of years ago, I, I read a book written by a, a theologian, a theologian who had fallen into disrepute by people who had been friends of his for a number of years. And I was intrigued by the title of his book, and so I, I bought it and I started to read through it. And, and here was a man who had gone through great suffering, a brilliant man, had, had a great mind, and he moved out into um, a more um, rural area in, in his life, and there he raised his uh, adult children. He and his wife had gone through some physical problems, and, and then they had difficulty with their youngest son. And their youngest son got involved in drugs, and they prayed over him. They sent him to the best counselors that they could find. And, and then one Christmas Eve, they got word that their son had died from a drug overdose. And you can imagine, this family was in tremendous grief. They sat around for days, not saying anything. They had the funeral. About three days after the funeral, the man writes in his autobiography that he got a bill from the funeral home. And the cost of the funeral was $10,635. And he just looked at that bill and he wept. He had no money. Did not know what he was going to do, how he was going to pay that bill. In the meantime, a card, sympathy cards, as normally happens, were coming into the home. And he'd just take the cards and throw them on the table, and they started to build a pile. And one day, not having opened any <clears throat> of those envelopes, he, he started, and he shed some tears as he would read from one friend. And he'd open the card, sometimes a check would fall out. And he'd just put the check aside, open another card, read the greeting, and 
check would be there and put it aside. And this happened over and over and over again. It took him about an hour and a half to go through all of those cards. And he thought, I wonder how much I have in checks here. And he started to add them up. And the total came out to $10,635. And he writes in his biography, I sat and wept, and then I cried out to God, God, you are good. Even in the midst of my pain, you are good to me, and you provide for me whatever I need. I hope you never have to go through what that man went through. I hope I never have to go through that kind of an experience. But I know from looking at this text and other texts of Scripture that God reveals His character. He does that. He reveals who He is so that we might have the courage to do whatever He asks of us. So I come back to where I started in the question I have for you, what is God asking you to do? Maybe he's asking you to uh, forgive someone, and it's been hard. God will give you the strength to carry out that task of forgiving someone, even though it will be hard. Maybe God is asking you to change careers. Maybe he's asking you to get involved in the church in some way. You do not need to be afraid, because whatever God asks He'll carry it out. He'll give you the strength to do it because he's eternal and personal. He's faithful and true. He's omniscient and he's omnipotent and he is the God who provides. But maybe God is speaking to you in some other way. It could be you've been listening to this sermon and maybe, just maybe, you're saying, you know, I, I think I'm kind of far away from God. I'm, I'm not sure that <clears throat> I can really enter into a personal conversation with God. If that's the case, I want to tell you that God might be speaking to you right now. And one of the things that he's saying to you is, come, come to me. If you are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. And the way he will give us rest is when we come to understand that we are sinners, all of us, myself included, desperately in need of a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. In fact, Jesus is the great I Am that Moses talks about in chapter 3 and verse 14. He is the I am who came into the world, very God of very God, took upon flesh and blood, and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might have a relationship with God. Dear friend, if you've never trusted him, trust him today. Tell him that you're inviting him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Father, I would ask that you would take your word, start with me, change me. I want to do your will, and I know that you will provide so that I might do your will. But now I pray for my friends who are watching this sermon this morning. Give them strength. Give them courage to follow through and do whatever you're asking of them. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us opportunity and even freedom to worship today. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.